You're listening to Inside Acting. To find out more and make a donation, visit InsideActingPodcast.com. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Inside Acting. My name is Trevor Algott and on this podcast we interview casting directors, agents, actors, managers, filmmakers, writers, producers, anybody involved in the entertainment industry and we bring those interviews to you. And while AJ and I by no means know everything, we are just two dudes with a podcast, um, we want to make sure that we keep this podcast as open a discussion as possible. We don't pretend to know everything and if you guys have something you agree or disagree with, or you just want to chip in your two cents, please let us know. There are a myriad ways to get in touch with us and be a part of the discussion. The easiest way is probably just to shoot us an email, but hit us up at insideactingpodcast.com. You'll see all the different ways to uh, get your voice in the discussion as well, and we definitely want to hear from you. So, uh, welcome, guys. Uh, I'm flying solo this week because AJ couldn't make it. He and I have both had insane schedules the past couple weeks, and uh, in order to get this episode out on a Monday... And return to a semi-regular, semi-consistent release schedule. Um, I had to fly solo this week. But he will be back with us next week. So um, all is still well in the Inside Acting Podcast world. Uh, we've got a really, really, really great interview with uh, a buddy of mine. And a, a, a actually kind of up-and-coming successful filmmaker as well. Uh, his name's Tony Rago, and this is a two-part interview, the first part you're going to hear in just a little bit. Um, but it's actually a very timely interview, and, and I say timely because, I mean, this whole interview actually is about creating your own work. Tony made his own film. Um, he's been making films for a little while now, although he's kind of primarily an actor. He's really branching into writer-slash-director-slash-producer territory as well. And uh, this latest film he's created, Rimshot, um, has won a bunch of awards at film festivals. It's, it got a write-up in uh, Movie Maker magazine. He's doing quite well for himself, and he's actually about to launch uh, an original web series that he's written 13 episodes for in one week. So this guy's got a few tricks up his sleeve, and uh, he's got a great energy as well. I hope that you guys will be able to learn a lot. I know I, sa- I certainly learned a lot just sitting down with him. But uh, I-, I say timely about this interview because... Uh, I personally have not only been feeling the itch to kind of create my own work as an actor uh, more and more the older I get, but also because I've been dealing a little bit with some burnout lately. Um, I haven't really spoken about this in the podcast, but I've been feeling it for some time. And um, it's kind of disturbing because I'm starting to wonder if the guy who I am now is the same guy that came out here six, seven years ago and wanted to be an actor. It's not that I don't want to do it anymore. It's just that I feel a subtle shift in my priorities. And it's it's kind of scary, to be honest. Um, and I, I've kind of been sharing this feeling with some other actors that are a little bit older than I am and have been at this for a little longer than I have. And they've all kind of said the same thing. They've all kind of said, yeah, Trev, you're about right on schedule. I mean, Tony says it in this interview. He says, actors seem to have a a, a midlife crisis much sooner than people in other professions. And uh, they've all also said that really the only way to remedy that is to a kind of feed the other passions that might be cropping up and, and pushing the acting out of the picture a little bit uh, and B really just start making your own work. And that feels really good for me because a, I've really been kind of feeling the tug towards the music world a lot more lately. 
Um, I'll talk more about that in, in future episodes. And and B, because I, I, you know, feeling a little kind of burned out of the industry, the last thing you want to do is throw away 40, 50 bucks on casting director workshops and various networking groups and seminars and classes and things like that, you know? And I was kind of thinking to myself, like, if that's the last thing in the world I want to do, I should listen to myself and see what else I can do. You know, what, what do I have control over right now? That, that kind of does ignite a spark in me because that other stuff really hasn't been igniting a spark. So um, creating my own work has really kind of been the answer to that, both through talking to these different people, including Tony, and um, just kind of listening to myself. Um, so on that note, before we jump into this interview, um, I, I just kind of wanted to share a really great tool that I've come across to help kind of jumpstart that process, that that writing your own project process. Uh, and that tool is called Writer's Dream Kit. It's a piece of software you can get for Mac or PC. It's about 40 bucks online. I bought it at uh, Amazon.com. And it's a very cool program because it's based on a theory of storytelling, a structure of story uh, called the Dramatica Theory. In fact, that program, Writer's Dream Kit, is a little brother program to uh, Dramatica, which is a much more expensive, much more robust kind of story brainstorming program. But anyway, what the program does is it just kind of asks you uh, questions that help you kind of hone and shape and sharpen your story based on this Dramatica theory of storytelling, as well as these eight or nine character archetypes. So as you answer these questions about the story, you're kind of forced to flesh things out. And then it kind of guides you into, you know, this plot point needs to take a turn here and this character needs to make his appearance and his intentions felt and known right here in the script and it's really pretty cool and I, I just had a I was laying on the couch the other day just kind of <laughs> staring at the ceiling thinking about all this stuff and I was hit with an idea and I was like cool so I sat down with this software and and I'm, I'm really excited about where it's going um, and as you guys all know on this podcast we really try to push all actors being writers and producers as well uh, and a lot of you guys that are on Twitter, um, I've noticed, do that, which is so cool. In fact, a lot of you guys are farther along than than I am and even farther along than, than Tony is. And Tony is pretty far along. So um, keep up the awesome work. Love Inside Acting Podcast. Um, so without further ado, let's just roll into this interview. Oh, before I do that, I wanted to give a quick shout out to Jamie Lynch for her generous donation Thank you, Jamie, for the donation. Um, anybody listening to this who's kind of new to the podcast, um, we do this completely out of our own pocket. And uh, it, it's not free. You know, it costs money for us to drive around and interview the various people. The equipment costs money. The the time invested, certainly, um, is worth money. And the, um, the, uh, the server fees and the file hosting and all that stuff costs a lot of money, too. So it's not that we're in this to make a profit, but it'd be nice to kind of, you know, have a little help. And, and so many of you guys have stepped up and kicked us a few dollars here and there to help us cover those costs. And we are so appreciative. So, Jamie, thank you very much for being our latest donor. And uh, anybody else out there who might be on the fence, no amount is too small. Head on over to our website. Click the donate button. We would so appreciate it. It really means the world to us, and that's how we keep this podcast going. So um, that said, without further ado, enjoy the first part of Tony Rago's interview on creating your own work. I'll see you guys on the other side. Okay, guys, welcome back. I am 
excited to be sitting here with uh, a friend of mine and a fellow actor, Tony Rago, uh, who is is not only a fantastic actor, but also uh, just finished, well, not really just finished, but fairly recently completed uh, a, a short film and screened it at the film festival and got a lot of kind of notoriety in an interview in Screenwriter, Screenwriter? Movie Maker. Movie Maker magazine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. And he has some really kind of inspiring stuff to, to share with us. So I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for, for taking the time, well, Tony. Thanks for inviting me. This is great. Cool. So um, usually on these podcasts, we like to start at the very beginning. Mm. Um, uh, I know you, you know, mm. you're, you're, we're both represented by the same agency, but yes. I don't know much about where you're from, how you got into acting, why you pursue this when it's a very difficult profession. So <laughs> let's, let's kind of start at the beginning. You all were right. born when? <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> I, uh, all right. Well, <clears throat> I actually have, um, I've been acting all of my life. I, um, when I was a kid, I grew up in Chicago and when I was a kid, I uh, loved Bozo the Clown. Oh, I remember Bozo. TV show, <laughs> yeah. Bozo the Clown, right. And uh, so I wanted to do, I wanted to be that. And I would put on little shows at my uh, folks' house. Um, and, you know, and back then they didn't really have clown classes. So I ended up getting into acting and I was doing theater by the time I was age nine. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember as a young kid thinking I was really lucky because I knew what I wanted to do with my life. Um, and, mm. you know, I'd see other people and they, they didn't decide yet. You know, that's a big struggle for someone to f- figure out what they want to do. Uh, it wasn't until much later I realized that my lucky <laughs> decision was probably one of the hardest jobs ever to get into. Right. Um, but nevertheless, you know, I, um, out of college – when everyone's starting to suddenly make money, all your friends, you know, you've all been broke and sort of even, even the business majors and all that. And all of a sudden, <laughs> they land the 60,000 job and all of a sudden you're still waiting tables for two fifty an hour. Uh, yeah. Suddenly, you realize that this passion could also be a curse, <laughs> you know. Uh-huh. Um, so there was a lot of soul searching in that regard. And I think every artist, they say, goes through a midlife crisis much earlier in their life because it's basically a, not necessarily a midlife crisis, but just a you know, the artistic crisis. Yeah. And at that point I decided, you know what, this is what I want to do. This is all that I want to do. So I'm just going to do it. And if, uh, if it turns out that I'm poor and, and destitute and, and, and always compromising financially throughout my life, at least I'll have always sort of pursued my dream and I'll be a happier individual. Sure. Um, and so that's that's basically why I'm still doing this. <laughs> right. Now, how old are you now, Tony? I'm uh, old enough to know better, but young enough to not care. <laughs> it, well, I, I ask because because you mentioned the kind of midlife crisis thing, and, and yeah. I I'm 28 years old. Yes. I'm going to be 29 next month, and I've I'm I'm there. I'm at that's that midlife crisis. Generally, when it happens, yes. where I'm going. What am I doing, man? Is this really what I want to do? Do I feel the passion anymore? Like, you know, like I'm starting to feel the pressure to perform. Yeah. And especially from friends and family, they haven't yes. actually said to me, you know, Trevor, what are you doing with your life? Yeah. But I feel like, God, you know, I'm going to be 30 soon. Like, I better do something with my life. Yeah. Now, when, so, I, was, when I was 27, I quit doing theater. Um, and, uh, you know, it was funny. My folks were very um, supportive. And I did theater literally from when I was nine all the way through college, hmm. constantly. Um, but it wasn't until I was in my sophomore year in college uh, that my folks actually said to me, so this is really what you want to do, huh? I mean, literally, I've been doing 10 years of nonstop theater, and they're all of a sudden going, so maybe you like this. <laughs> um, so, you know, friends and family and all that, they don't get it. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't get it. 
Um, because to them, you know, their passion um, is something different. You know, they go to work, they work their nine to five. A lot of people, their passion is something like creating a family, having kids, um, building something, you know, like models or something in their basement that they can do on the weekends. Or for us, our passion is is acting, you know, for many artists, uh, their passion is creating something. And, uh, and generally, you know, you're just sort of consumed with that. I, I, I would find that when I would not do theater, I would go into depressions because all of a sudden I was like, Oh my God, I need an outlet. Yeah. And, uh, but I quit around 27. I decided you to quit ch- acting. I quit. Well, I didn't necessarily or- quit acting. It was just that I stopped pursuing it. Um, and I thought, you know, well, if something comes my way, then uh, I'll do that. But, you know, I'm going to focus on a job. I had just moved in with a girl. You know, it was, it was very much in that sort of like, I'm growing up now. Um, and it was one of the worst years of my life. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, at the end of it, um, I realized this is terrible. You know, this isn't who I am. And it just makes me cranky and sad. And so... That I got back into the theater. I did three shows in one year, and then decided to move to Los Angeles. And where, where were you previously? Chicago. That's Chicago. That's okay. where I'd done a lot. And and Chicago's a great town. It's a great theater town. Um, you can do a lot of um, experimental theater, and you can make money there because you know with Leo Burnett, it has a nice sort of commercial hub. And I used to know a lot of guys who would make money at commercials. But um, really, the way to make money in Chicago doing theater is musical theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. I cannot sing a lick. So I said to myself, you know, I, I'm not going to be doing it here. And, and maybe I could do commercials. But the most of the guys I knew who did commercials, that, that was a supplement to their musical theater career. So I said, all right, so it's either New York or L.A. And I had done at this point, you know, I was almost 30. Uh, I had done theater since I was nine. Uh, and I decided that although I l- loved doing theater, what I really loved more was film and television and hot weather. So I came hmm. to Los Angeles. Um, and that's been my pursuit since then is really sort of the film and television, which has sort of led me to where I'm at now in terms of making my own films, though I had started doing that in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that we were talking the other day. Um, about making your own material. And one of the things I said was, uh, you know, the whole concept, and, and forgive me if I'm rushing into this no, part, but it, it sort of seems to segue with what I was talking about. Um, the whole thing I said was, you know, you just got to do it. Just just go out and do it. Don't, don't let obstacles stand in the way. Um, primarily because it's going to take four or five projects before you really kind of feel like you know what you're doing. And, and that... You know, I made a couple of films when I was in Chicago. Um, I was doing this uh, uh, multimedia sketch show, and um, it would take bands and film and and sketch and monologues, and we would um, do it around a certain topic. Uh, This guy that that was in charge of it, his name was Dave All, and he worked with a theater up there called the Neo Futurarium, and I think he still does that with them. And uh, they do. They did at the time a show called uh, "Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind." Mm, so if I've anyone's if anyone's from Chicago, that's the show and that's the theater. And Dave Hall is the man, and he put together this um, this show, um, and we did um, a, a piece about um, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, uh, quantum physics. That was our first theme to do. <laughs> 
<laughs> to so do. you're starting small. Just small. Yeah. yeah something <laughs> simple. Something every day sure, people can sure. relate to. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, and, uh, and then the next year we did it on dreams. And um, in the dream year, I had an idea for a film because uh, I uh, had – you know, I'd always take the subway or the L in Chicago, and I noticed that when crazy people came onto the L, um, your general public would just sort of, you know, if you're reading a book or something or just sort of looking off in the distance, they wouldn't move. They would just sort of pretend like this person wasn't talking to chickens or or arguing with his uh, Coke bottle. You know, they would just sort of be like, that's normal, and I'm not going to, you know, and it, right. it's kind of out of a fear of if I engage that, I will be pulled into that, and I don't want to deal with that. Uh-huh. So we were doing this show on dreams and I thought, you know, everyone has that dream where they're in public in their underwear, you know, and, and it's frightening. Um, and uh, but one thing I had realized about my dreams was mostly and this is especially given to like auditioning, acting, going on, you know, random jobs because you gave up one to do something. Um, I would realize that I would dream about these experiences before they happen and, and it'd be terrible, frightening dreams. But then I'd go and do the experience and it was fine. You know, mm-hmm. and I realized my dreams make life a lot more scarier than it really is. Maybe that's the truth with um, with the underwear scenario. Maybe, you know, being in public in your underwear isn't so frightening. So I made a film, a short film called Underwear, where I walked around Chicago in February uh, in nothing but tidy whities. And I remember you telling this is great. <laughs> and I got, uh, and it went great. I walked, uh, I crossed busy streets. I got on the subway. I got on a bus. I went into uh, coffee shops. I held a cab. Um, and most of the time people would just sort of look down like, Oh my God, there's a guy in his underwear. I'm not going to engage that. And so you get little clips on film and it looks like, yeah, it's everyday thing. No one cares. Right. Um, and, uh, and I got a lot of attention off of that. Now, how did, just to stop you real quick, how yeah. did you go into coffee shops and stuff and not get stopped? <laughs> I mean, the whole no well, shirt, no shoes, no yeah. service kind well, of thing. Well, what I would do, actually, and, and you know, uh, and, and sort of to back up all for, this, for these people in terms of the just do it, um, the, my whole approach to it was I had a friend who was in film school. And so I made a deal with him. Hey, I'll act in all of your movies if you occasionally rent the equipment and make movies for me. So that's how, I, that's that's how a, I was able to get the equipment. That's a pretty good deal. <laughs> um, and, um, and then I went to places. You know, we, uh, I was dressed normal. And I would go to places and just say, hey, you know, I'm doing this little thing. It's, uh, it's for school <laughs> because, you know, we had all this uh, Columbia College equipment. Uh, and if you tell people it's for school, they're sort of like, well, how am I going to stand in the way of education? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so I would go into places and they were just sort of like, you know, and and to be quite honest, you know, most of the people, <laughs> you're in your underwear. Um, like I would approach them first dressed and then I would, you know, uh, uh, strip down and and they get this sort of odd expression like, well, if this guy's in his underwear and, and he's willing to do it on film – He's got to be an okay guy. You don't have that sort of strange quality, you know? Um, and so, like, people are – it's that it's that celebrity aspect, you know? Uh, yeah. Doing something on camera instantly makes you interesting, um, and which is why reality television still exists, um, even when those people are, like, idiots and, and slobs and jerks. Um, 
And so uh, you go into places, and as long as you say, hey, I got this camera, and I'm going to be really polite, and it's totally, you know, whatever you call the shots, but I just want to do this, and I'll be in and out, they're generally fine with it. And that's what you told people when you walked into these shots? That's what I would do, yeah. Um, Sometimes it was a surprise, you know, like on the bus and the subway, uh, I just wore a trench coat. Um, you know, it was February. <laughs> yeah, that's not uh, going to get you arrested. It, you know, yeah. <laughs> a trench coat with nothing underneath. Right. And I would just drop the <laughs> trench coat and then we'd go. You know, I had right. someone off camera who would just grab my trench coat and someone on the other side of the camera who had another trench coat and I would just do it and then get back dressed. Uh, and we did have the cops come one time. Uh, and again, we said, hey, we're just shooting this for school. And they were like, all right, well, get right, out of here. Right. You know, for school works. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, I still think I'm going to try. And, I don't look like I'm still in college, but I'm still going to try and use it. You know, you know what I found it works really well. I, I like the school thing. That's good if, if you still look like you could be in school. Yes. Um, what also works really well is, is uh, if the cops stop, you just tell them you're shooting it for a friend's wedding video. Yo, yes. Oh, my God. It works like a charm every which, single time. Which I did. One of my movies was for a, we- a friend's wedding uh, and and that's what I did. I would walk into places and go, "Hey, I'm I'm putting this together for my buddy. It's his bachelor party for his marriage. Yeah. I can't make it. You know, if you if you play on people's sympathy, you can probably get a lot away with a lot. Yeah. Um, Permit too expensive. <laughs> Here's a useful lie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, most of my stuff I did gorilla style. Um, and and that first one underwear. You know, the other thing I was saying to you the other day is uh, um, if you can tell a story. That's really, you know, the, the the most important thing. You're seventy five percent of the way there, yeah. because um, most people don't really know how to tell a story, um, and you can tell that at parties when people are just telling like funny incidents. You know, you have that guy who. He'll start telling a story, and all of a sudden you realize this is going on way too long because he threw in too many tangents, too many details. And you're not really even sure what the story was about. And then you know that other person who tells the story, and it's like, oh, you're laughing all the time, and they seem to have the right timing. If you're one of those people, you can tell a story. Hmm. And then just figure out how to write it down. It doesn't have to be in a perfect script form. You don't know, have, you don't have to know how to be a screenplay person. Uh, underwear. The first two movies I did were silent because it was easier to deal with just a camera and not sound. Sure. Um, but even the the cameras today, you know, it's amazing the sound quality and all that. If you just write a simple story and it has a beginning, middle, and end, and it has a seeming arc to it. Um, you are 75% of the way there because most people don't know how to tell a story. Yeah. Uh, which reaffirms that uh, what I'm doing with my life is correct because obviously this isn't just something anyone has as talent. You know, uh, and I've seen that out of people who are even trying to pursue what we're trying to pursue. They don't know how to tell a story. Mm-hmm. So if you know how to tell a story, that's probably a, a, a God given gift. And so you should use it. Yeah. And so once you know how to tell a story, it doesn't really matter the rest of it. Underwear, um, we used, uh, you know, it was back in the film days before. Before digital. Before digital. Yeah. And, um, you know, we were using crappy uh, university rented out to uh, every brother and sister and their cousin cameras, Boleros, I think they were called. And, um, uh, and maybe I have that wrong. Maybe I'm thinking of a Spanish dance or something. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> But uh, we used these crappy cameras and and this poor cheap stock because it was you know expensive and 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 we couldn't afford it. And the film itself actually looks pretty poor. It's black and white. 
um, and it's it's kind of jumpy and grainy. Um, but I and I did it silent, uh, and I did this story, and everyone was coming up to me going, "Oh, this is amazing! It's like a Charlie Chaplin film." Uh, which was fantastic because Chaplin's one of my heroes, and I loved all the silent films. But I had no intention going in to make a Chaplin film. I just thought I was making something about dreams. Um, but you know, the the poor technical aspect of it worked for people because the story worked. Mm. And so I had the Chicago Tribune call it brilliant. I had the Chicago Reader, um, which is the free magazine, the very hip, you know, uh, uh, call it fantastic. I, the, the woman wanted to do a whole article on me. Um, it was incredible the response I had. And that was just because I made this five-minute-long film uh, with the crappy equipment and showed it in a sketch show as one of, like, ten pieces in a sketch show for a couple of weekends. Boom. All this attention. Just to kind of briefly recap before we kind of get into this, yeah. this next chunk. Yeah. It, so it sounds like you, you always knew you wanted to be an actor and you knew you always. had a knack for storytelling. Yes. And you kind of went into theater and just kind of stuck with it until a yeah. certain point in your life where you thought, gosh, you know, I, I better start doing something with my yeah. life that's a little more, you know, quote unquote meaningful, yeah. you know, other yeah. than, than playing around on stage. Yes. And then you tried it out and it was miserable. So you came back to acting, you moved out to LA and you've got this this DIY mentality with you, which this is what I love. You didn't let all these different things stop you. I wouldn't have thought, just do it. Yeah. And that's what you've brought um, all along. with you. And you've yeah. brought that to this film rim shot that you made, that yes. you shot in a weekend, that you wrote and yeah. shot in a weekend. Yeah. And that has gotten a lot of attention in these film festivals yes. and even landed you an interview in, in Movie Maker Magazine. So, so talk a little bit about this because we had this conversation earlier this yeah. week and it was really inspiring to hear what you had to say about just going out there and getting it done i um went to the movie maker magazine and just to give you a little background on Rimshot, it was uh, uh my buddy kevin and i had done uh, a, another short film again for another sketch show uh called drive by stand up and 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 we shot that real quick and it was a lot of fun and he had this idea which was sort of kind of a follow-up on these characters but we changed them a little bit and that was Rimshot, and we, we wrote it out. It was going to be for this sketch show. And then we realized it was a lot more than just a little sketch. And so we figured it was a short film. And we contacted some people and called in some favors, and we put it all together, and we made this film. And as we were making it, um, we realized, you know, usually you go in with a sort of dream, an idea of this is what I want the story to be, and this is how I would like it to look. And then you make little compromises along the way, mm-hmm. and it never quite hits the ideal. Um, but it's okay. It always turns out fine. And Well, with Rimshot, we had this idea, this dream, and then as we were filming it, we suddenly realized this is actually better than our ideal. Um, and so we knew we had something special. So can you Just for our listeners who aren't mm-hmm. familiar with it, can you tell a little bit about what the story is? The Rimshot is the story. It's sort of a play on the movie Awakenings with uh, uh, Robin Williams and, and, and Robert De Niro um, in that uh, I play a psychiatrist who comes across a patient who's vegetative. You know, he doesn't move. Um, and my doctor is obviously a frustrated stand-up comedian who's always telling these terrible corny jokes that no one enjoys. Uh, and so I meet this patient, and in the process of telling him jokes, I realize the only movement he can do is a rim shot, which is the brampa on right, the end of right. a joke. Uh, going back to like Henny Youngman days, terrible, terrible, stupid jokes. Um, and the rim shot makes it funnier. So we had this idea where the doctor suddenly gets all this success with comedy because of the rim shot. And so he starts to abuse the um, 
<laughs> the patient <laughs> um, for his own sort of comedic ideal and dream and uh, and then eventually enters in a talent show and uh, in the process of trying to win all this money in the talent show, the patient um, notices a magician uh, doing their act and instead of doing a rim shot, starts doing the mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, and so the magician ends up winning falling in love with the patient and checks him out of the hospital and the doctor is left, you know, sort of uh, alone. Um, and uh, and that's basically Rimshot. <laughs> and this is a story that you just came up with. Yeah. he. Uh, my nickname, uh, because I tell awful jokes, uh, is Rimshot. Uh, a friend of mine, Matt Key, uh, gave me that nickname. Called me Rimshot. Rimshot Rego. And, uh, and so we were joking about that and Kevin came up with this idea. What if there was a guy who all he ever did was a Rimshot? You know, and uh-huh. he could follow you. You're named Rimshot Rego. Boom! What a nice pairing. And then I came up with the idea of, well, you need a, you need an arc to this story. Mm-hmm. It just can't be. What are we? Why are we watching these two people? That's nothing. I came up with the idea of it has to be that the doctor uses him because if you're having a guy just follow you and all he can do is a rimshot, you're kind of taking advantage of that. The doctor has to use him and get his comeuppance. So that's when we came up with the idea of the magician. The 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 rimshot guy had to have an arc, and that arc is he meets someone who he can both do his talent for, who appreciates it, and therefore thereby he finds love, and that really then became the story. We had everything. You know, it was the beginning. Okay, we meet it vegetative uh, patient. Mm-hmm. He can do a rim shot. It was the middle, which was the doctor abuses it. And then the end where the patient then grows and moves on mm-hmm. beyond the doctor. And, you know, we knew we had something special when we got done filming it. And it was, you know, a six page script turned out to be a 13 page. Uh, I mean, a 13 minute short. So we decided let's enter it in film festivals. Uh-huh. And we did. There's a, there's a site online called without a box. Uh, which is a fabulous site. And it basically gathers together a bunch of dis- different film festivals and it alerts you to that. And you join it for like 150 bucks, and you put together an online public uh, a publicity uh, package. And then all you have to do each time you submit to a film festival is you just select the film festival and you pay the entrance fee, which is generally anywhere between 40 and 80 bucks. And Without a Box has all that information and it just funnels it right to this each festival. Oh, that's nice. And then the um, festival says, okay, you're in or you're not. And uh, we we submitted to it a bunch. Um, and we got in probably about a third of them. It's a, it's a, it's a jokey short. Um, and so uh, that isn't really the kind of film festival's uh, type, type stuff. of stuff. Sure, yeah, that's sure. usually film festival's edgier kind of stuff. Yeah. We had this jokey little <laughs> short. Um, but still... We had nice quality to it, um, which was all, again, university-rented equipment. Uh, Was it really? Our DP was actually, rather than someone going to school, he was the guy who rented it out to the students. Oh, how about that? And so he had access to it. So university-rented equipment, plus some of his own stuff that he had gathered throughout the years uh, as a filmmaker that he would uh, use with it. One was this lens that gives a depth of field that really changed and added a nice quality to it. But... Ultimately, it was just that it was um, favors from friends, uh, it, mostly because we had done stuff on their work that they were then saying, oh, yeah, I'll do that. You know, we had a couple of guys who were our grips 
for two days, 18-hour days, two in a row. Terrible, terrible work if you're a grip, uh, which is just basically, hey, move this, sit there, shut up, move this, sit there, shut up. And they did it because we had done work on their stuff. Mm. So that's part of the um, the DIY is you have to give before you get. Sure, sure. Um, and so, you know, uh, hopefully you do have a passion for it. You'll love doing it for other people and then getting it back. So all of that created this really fine looking piece that and that's what got us into festivals. And then we started winning awards. Uh, we got into the Feel Good Festival, which showed at the Egyptian here uh, mm-hmm. on Hollywood. It's an old fantastic theater built the same guy who built the uh, grandma's chinese and in the same sort of vein and rather a, than a chinese of, egyptian yeah. a lot of up-and-coming filmmakers have their films show there it's, i mean it's you, really a great long list of people who mm-hmm. when they were just getting started had their film screened to the egyptian yeah it, it, the egyptian is sort of the uh the indie art aspect of those two theaters you know grauman yeah. does all the big blockbuster ones and then the egyptian is sort of the the film lovers kind of uh version of that yeah <clears throat> And so doing that there was just an honor. And we got a, people who saw us there, and, and one thing led to another. We're in one film festival and in another. And the next thing you know, this group called the New Filmmakers uh, contacted us saying, hey, we want you in our, in our program. We show four shorts a month, mm-hmm. and we want you in our program. And we said, yeah. Um, and we went, and we sent them the film, and we went, and we watched the screening. And, and, and of the four films... I realized that some people have a problem, again, telling a story. And, and um, you were saying that the films looked beautiful. They beautiful. sounded beautiful. Everything was pristine about them, yeah. but they weren't really about anything. Yes, exactly. Or or they were about something, but they didn't have the right focus on it. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a really beautiful film about uh, lychee thieves that showed um, – it was a half-hour-long filmed in Hawaii, huge cast – uh, really great, but what they really needed was to figure out who the protagonist is, who the antagonist mm-hmm. is, uh, you know what that arc is, so that we as an audience could identify and go. And we had that, even though we had this jokey little sketch basic movie, um, it had nice quality to it, and we could tell a story. So what ended up happening is people identify with it. They root for it. They like it. That's how we get into these festivals. That's how we're able to get in besides being edgy. That's also how people enjoy the movie and come up and talk to us. We got up to do a question and answer. And it was all these new filmmakers going, how do you do it? How do you, what, what do you do? How, what do you do? And I basically said, and this is what I told you the other day and why I'm doing this right now is who cares? Just do it. Just do it. Yeah. Write it. Just write whatever it is. You got a story, write it. And then figure out how to make it. And generally, the best way to go about that is get friends to help you. You'll never get anything done alone. Get friends to help you. Do things for those friends so you can call in favors. Get the equipment any way you can. It doesn't matter how. And even like you were saying, you were shooting something and some guys yeah. drove by. And they're like, hey, we got a light, quit, light kit. You know, we'll, we'll let you borrow that. Sure, it's probably a little bit easier in L.A., Sure. To find people that, sure. hey, I just happen to have a light kit. Some guy listening yeah. in Minnesota is like, fuck you. Um, <laughs> but you know what? It doesn't matter. Like I said, because it's not until your fifth project that you're really going to be learning mm-hmm. how to do things right. So those mm-hmm. first couple of projects, don't worry about the technology. Don't worry about anything. Figure out how to tell a story. By the fifth project, you'll have met people with a light kit, even if you're in Minnesota. 
you'll come together mm-hmm. uh, and you'll know the people to call on and you'll have worked for them and you'll be able to call favors. Like we were saying the other day, I've, I've got this project and the guy who I normally do uh, my films with who has all the camera equipment started his own business yeah. um, because of this, because of uh, this experience, which is great. So now he's making a living now because of that. And unfortunately, he's too busy just to give away a weekend for me to film a little thing. But you know what? That's not going to stop me. Write the thing. I'm sure as I'm writing it, I'll be talking about the project. If I have a good story, someone will hear that and go, wow, that sounds great. They'll know someone with a camera or they'll have a camera or something. And all of a sudden, they're going to want to be involved. Right. Right. So even though I don't necessarily have my team, I still have what it takes to gather a team. Yeah. And um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm embarking on more projects now that. I don't have anything in place, really. I don't have yeah. any money. I don't have a camera. Uh, all I've got is the idea and a friend. <laughs> but I am guarantee you I will get this done. It's the jump and the net will appear. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So if this first part of the interview didn't get you guys kind of up and moving and, and feeling the itch to kind of get off your butt and start creating your own stuff, not that you're sitting around being lazy, but um, if it didn't get you going, give it another listen because Tony has so many great things to share and I love his attitude of just just do it. Fail forward is the whole idea and this is something that I've been a huge fan of just starting. You know, um, You're probably going to mess up and your first projects and steps will probably not be that great, but you're going to be light years ahead of the person that never took any action and is now the same number of days older that you are and you did take action. So... Man, it's weird flying solo on this podcast. I feel like I'm just preaching and preaching and preaching and talking all about myself. So uh, why don't I just end it? <laughs> Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Um, of course, you know where to find us, InsideActingPodcast.com. You can shoot us an email at InsideActingPodcast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I am at Trevor Algott. You can follow AJ on Twitter. He is at Digital Actor. You can fan us on Facebook. You can leave us a review on iTunes. You can um, call us, 213-2-ACTORS. And, of course, you can donate. So thanks so much for listening, guys. Part two of Tony's interview is coming next week, and we have a lot of really exciting stuff in the pipeline. So if you haven't subscribed to iTunes, make sure you head on over and subscribe. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time. Yeah.